Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Welcome back, everyone. I'm glad to have with me today Father Christopher and Father Kenneth. And we're going to be discussing with Father Ken his recent work on death. And Father Kenneth, you were, it's been a week or so now, you were with Wynn Collier and the students at Western, Doctor of Ministry students there in the Eugene Peterson Center, talking about death. And you had a couple of sessions with them, I know. Why don't, why don't we start the conversation with that? Tell us about the experience and what you shared with the students. Yeah, so um, last Thursday um, afternoon, I was in uh, some uh, Wynn's course on pastoral imagination, which is um, a course he's teaching the semester at the seminary, uh, Western Seminary, with the doctor of uh, the ministry, uh, the, the uh, MDiv students. Mm. Um, so okay. the divinity uh, students. Um, and this is kind of a, a tail end course that that graduating MDiv students take at Western. It didn't, as I as I had assumed, um, maybe preparing. It wasn't with his pa- pastoral imagination cohort in the Doctor of Ministry program, okay. the okay. Eugene Peterson Center. These are straightforward MDiv students at Western. Uh, but you know, basically, uh, the title of the course is so similar. I got confused, but. Um, nevertheless, really powerful time um, with those students and with Wen, and um, and you know that's in Holland, Michigan, which is right on Lake Michigan, about two hours and forty five minutes from Detroit. So we drove over there um, and had a, a, a decent time with them um, uh, over that afternoon uh, discussing the problem of death and. Uh, the just constant confrontation with death that anyone involved in pastoral ministry uh, is going to confront. Sometimes we, and we don't know when, or we don't know how soon and we don't know how often, but it is absolutely central to pastoral ministry. And uh, so we've had a lot of, you know, uh, very from the moment I was ordained in to the priesthood in 96, it seemed like um, I was frequently being called into these situations of untimely, accidental, uh, violent death in, in California. Um, and that's for whatever reason, um, I, I've, I have been, um, in a lot of situations like that over, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the past, uh, 26 years. So 27, almost 27 years. So, Yeah, we had a, uh, and basically, uh, with these students, um, I'm, I, I used uh, David Bentley Hart and a passage from uh, his work, The Doors of the Sea, that is concluding to his whole argument there, uh, written just after the uh, Boxing Day tsunami in, in, um, in 2004, um, and a reflection on that great devastation. Um, and what he says about death there, um, and how he and Alexander Schmemann had, um, had really been a life changing encounter for me 
in terms of what is death and how do we relate to it as Christians. Um, you know, I was raised in Pentecostal uh, as a child, Pentecostal circles. Um, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in Pentecostal circles about death. Um, but um, in the sort of charismatic, and, and I want to distinguish, uh, you know, not the initial charismatic movement that broke out in the 60s and early 70s and all the denominations, but in that that second wave charismatic movement that came with the prosperity gospel and so forth. Thrust into that, there was a there was a, a disposition toward death that I found um, dismissive um, and not really confrontational, uh, avoiding um, death and uh, and kind of this over sort of triumphalist view of death. But with the with the Eastern Fathers, particularly you know, in the way that I was being tutored by them in Alexander Schmemann and, and then in David Hart, just laser focus on death as the enemy mm-hmm. of God and the enemy of man. And we know that because of the God-man, the human God, <laughs> um, reveals to us in his time and uh, his ministry and his life and in his death, um, that death is the enemy, uh, both of, of uh, the divine life and of uh, cr- created their created human creatures, and 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 that meets in Jesus um, and revealed in the cross. Uh, so I shared with the the students read um, an essay by Chris Green. Um, uh, called Dance Me to the End of Love. And um, it is a meditation on death that's being published in Jason Garanzi's collection on the Christian understanding of death that's coming out from, I believe, from Oxford um, University Press. Uh, so they had read that 17-page um, essay in an earlier form than it appears um, in a presentation form that, uh, that Chris had given at uh, a conference last summer. And um, so they they prepared for our time with that, but then we also opened the class with the quote from David Bentley Hart that emphasizes the, the enemy nature uh, of death. And I want to read uh, a little bit of that to you. Um, it's a, it's a short passage um, and it's from the end of David Hart's wise and moving argument for the gospel's God in which he ponders evil and death in the horrific wake of the Indian ocean tsunami, uh, called the doors of the sea, a little thin little volume from Erdman's. Um, so in it, he talks about encountering in the New York times, an article about what had happened, uh, across, uh, South, across Asia, really, um, and the ocean, but the, this was particular encounter that was in the New York Times was in Sri Lanka, um, where a man who had five children lost four of them uh, to the tsunami, and um, uh, this reporter is conveying this man's utter um, overwhelmed anguish um, at the loss of his children, and Hart says that. 
you know, if someone were to come in in that moment of his sadness and say that it's okay because God had some purpose in their death or it was part of his uh, ultimate design um, and that uh, he was going to somehow um, make it um, uh, sometime, somehow we would see at some point that their deaths had meaning uh, because they were part of, of God's plan. And he goes on to say that, look, if we wouldn't say that, if we know that that would be, you know, a, a major breach of human empathy to do that in the moment of this man's anguish, it would be very inappropriate to ever say something like that. Um, and uh, sometimes we might do this to, you know, sort of augment or elide or escape the, the radical confrontation with sorrow and, and the horror of death, um, either trying to help this person uh, escape that because God is in the midst of it and God is the one who brought it, or for yourself to feel some relief from this difficulty. Um, but he goes on to say that um, what we would be robbing both ourselves and this man in that moment with is the knowledge central to the gospel, that the, the knowledge of the evil of death, its intrinsic falsity, its unjust dominion over the world, um, the knowledge that God is not pleased or nourished by our deaths. Is not the secret architect of evil, that he's the conqueror of hell, that he has condemned all these things by the power of the cross, the knowledge that God is light and life and infinite love. And so um, as we survey, as in, I'm summarizing Hart, you know, um, the destruction and devastation of that day um, with these tens of thousands of corpses, a third of them children, um, you know, and console ourselves or others with um, vacuous cant about the ultimate meaning or purpose residing in all that misery. Um, rather, a recognition that ours is, after all, religion of salvation. Our faith is in a God who's come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin, the emptiness and waste of death. Of the forces, whether calculating malevolence or imbecile chance, as in the tsunami, that shatter living souls. And so we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. And he goes on um, in the book. He's been talking about uh, Dostoevsky and, and the brothers Karamazov and, uh, you know, about the about this young girl who was abused um, in the dark and in, in, in a hidden sense. And. Um, you know, that, that, that God is not, uh, you know, God's not, a, you know, God has, is not the author of this woman's abuse, um, as a child. Um, uh, anyways, he goes on to say, um, that, uh, we are able to rejoice that God will not unite all of history's many strands in one great synthesis, as, um, some religions, including some Christians claim but will judge much of history false and damnable that he will not simply reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes. And that rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary 
for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all tears from her eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, no crying, nor any more pain, for the former things will have passed away. And he that sits on the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Um, and in the midst of all of this, there is a line that really stands out. Um, and that, that is, as for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. Um, and of course, you know, we, we can understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um, the wisdom of Solomon from the scriptures helps us with this. God did not make death and he does not delight in the death of the living for he created all things that they might exist. God created us for incorruption, made us in the image of his own eternity, but through the devil's envy, death entered the world and those who belong to his company experience it. And also in Romans, through sin, death has come into the world. Um, and so this is how we began <laughs> uh, the conversation is to forcefully, and this was a life-changing moment for me to read the doors of the sea. Um, I had this very, very tiny role uh, in its creation because it started out as an exchange uh, with uh, Anthony Esselin, um, who was taking the position that, you know, Providence is involved in these things. And Hart was saying, no, you know, Providence is not involved in these things. And there was an exchange that was going on. It was an online exchange that I was moderating. Uh, and then there was a piece in the New York Times. There was a piece in First Things. And then he expanded it into this book, The Doors of the Sea. Uh, but uh, I latched on <laughs> to this. When we look in, you know, when when we are looking into the face of a dead child, we're not seeing the face of God. Um, and it, I, it, you know, I return to that often with what happened in Turkey and Syria. Uh, you know, what is happening in in uh, Ukraine um, and in everywhere where we see death and destruction visited on human. Um, so. Ken, one of the things that I, I want to ask you about with this is I know that you also engaged um, in the class some of the work from John Baer. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so how, how did what what did that look like? What particularly did you did you use there? Yeah. So um, we really wanted to. um you know, say, and I think we want to say first in these discussions, and the pri pri the priority is in affirming the scriptural testimony um, that is that is um, ratified in the history of the human God among us that death is the enemy. But you know, um, some a decade later. Um, I start to encounter the work of John Baer, um, and I began to see that this is really uh, complicated, you know, um, and uh, that death is complicated, um, and that while it is the enemy, and I think that's the first note we want to play, uh, the first movement of the symphony, 
there are other movements, <laughs> including that Christ is the conqueror of death and has filled death with himself and transfigured death um, so that it now belongs to God, you know, something that, that what isn't from God has now become uh, filled with the divine life and has been transfigured into, as the psalmist says, the everlasting door to um, to the eternal. And so um, I would... Uh, we also read some some a longest passage from an essay that John published, John Bear published in Sobernost in 2013, and we can provide in the show notes the specifics for people who want to go to the library and read these. Um, but uh, in it, he is telling us something else about death that seems on its face to be the opposite of what David is saying, but I think is actually um, exactly right and complementary and another side of all of this that we have to, um, that we have to, to face um, literally. So um, he's, John is talking about um, the, the, um, he in this path in this essay he's talking about the christian view of dying um and he is telling us that um as christians we look to jesus to understand death and what we see when we see jesus is a human being um who shows us that the way that the way to life is the way of death. Um, that in not, not in being passively overcome by death, but by actively embracing our death, we come to participate in eternal life, voluntarily taking up our cross, voluntarily, um, and actively Every day, dying, uh, we learn to um, take up God's life. And, and in the midst of the essay, he's talking about a culture that we're living in that denies death, that sweeps death under the rug, that um, that uh, that that farms out the, the 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 realities of dealing with death. Um, even the fact that we can stay alive so much longer, um, that we are not as people even a hundred years ago confronted with siblings who die before we, we, we leave childhood with parents who die before we become adults. Um, and, uh, in living in villages, confronting the deaths of many people where we're washing bodies, preparing bodies for burial, digging graves, building caskets, burying people, throwing dirt onto their coffins, um, all of these physical things, these confrontations with death. I mean, a day or two often of going into a living room with a dead body, children, adults, everybody experiencing all of this and that all of this has been sanitized and removed, that the dying die off somewhere else, often without their families, unfortunately, um, that that all of the 
burying of them is done like often away from those they loved and so forth. Um, and uh, so he's talking about all those things uh, and what it, what God is showing us. Um, but he takes up um, this question of, um, uh, let's see, the difference is not between a physical body and a spiritual body. The continuity is precisely the body itself. And the difference lies in the manner in which it lives, either as animated by a breath of life or revived by the life-creating spirit. And the trans transition is affected through the death of the breath. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Animated by a breath of life, Adam could have used this gift of life in a divine manner. But to do so, as Christ reminds us and shows us, requires living not for oneself, but rather being willing to die to oneself and live for others. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever would lose it for my sake will gain it. Christ himself shows us what the divine life, the life of the spirit rather than the breath, looks like by his own sacrifice. But not having yet seen this, Adam and we take life to be our own possession, to do with as we please, and trying to secure his own immortality ends up ever more enmeshed in the passions of this world, in sin, the sting of death. Um, despite our um, mortality, or rather because of it, we are tempted to hold on to this life as we know it, to do whatever we can to secure it, to live in it, to live it as mine for as long as I can perpetuate it. Um, it is not so much death itself, but rather the fear of death, as the letter to the Hebrews puts it, that has held us in a lifelong bondage. Uh, because of this fear of death, we do all that we can to preserve our lives, everything from working to make sure that we have bigger and more secure houses, ever larger savings and pension funds, doing all we can to preserve our life by ensuring our health. And he doesn't say it, but of course, through exercise and eating right and and all these things, and yet we kid ourselves all to the fear of death. But through the work of Christ, the gospel demonstrates to us that life comes through death. It is to those in the tombs that Christ gives life. If we don't live for ourselves trying to create our own mortality, if rather we learn even now to take up the cross, to die to ourselves and to live for Christ, his gospel and for others, then the very life that we begin to live even now is eternal. It cannot be touched by death, um, for we have entered it through death. Um, we will be living the life of the Spirit, not simply breathing. And so in the midst of this, I, I think 12 or um, 13 um, uh, page essay, he says something quite the opposite of... Um, um, of of David Bentley Hart. There's a line in this essay that seems to be in direct contradiction to what David Bentley Hart says in The Doors of the Sea, this essay in Sobranos on dying as a Christian. Um, and, and this is it. If it is true that Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way that he dies as a human being, then quite simply, if we no longer see death, because we've taken it away in all these ways that I've described, we no longer see the face of God. And so um, there's a paradox mm -hmm. there between yeah. what Hart is saying 
and what Father Bear is saying. And I think Christianity exists right in the center uh, of that paradox and, and keeping them and holding them both um, uh, strongly. And, uh, and so there we are. And given that, given that you're talking to, to these MDiv students and as you said earlier, I don't can't remember if you said this before we started recording or not, but that you were sharing a lot of your own stories, of course, with them. I'm curious to know, you know, maybe, maybe one or two of these stories that you feel like holds this kind of together, right? Where you're, you're with the dying and then the dead and you feel that sort of perfect hatred. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also yeah. this sense, also a sense that you had of like what Bear's saying, like this has been transfigured. Yeah. yeah. So many, so um, many uh, stories. I'll start with one death is enemy. Um, and we've just today uh, been touched by this evil again um, in Nashville. Um, private school, Presbyterian school, and uh, uh, three students that we know as the recording are dead. Three adults are dead from uh, violence. And, um, uh, and, and we don't know um, how many. And I recognize the church immediately as the church of a family that was at Holy Redeemer, but now reside in Nashville and got a hold of the parents. Um, their children are homeschooled and are safe. But uh, I was sure oh, this is, you know, the, I, I got to find out right away because this looks like their church. And in fact, it was. But, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, um, because I'm a chaplain to the um, Oakland County Sheriff's Office here in Michigan, um, I got a call in the afternoon. Um, and uh, right, right after Thanksgiving um, and uh, drove north about 15 minutes to the high school uh, in Oxford, um, they had set up in the shopping center uh, closest to the high school, a kind of triage area where they were bringing children in from the high school in buses um, and trying to reunite children with parents. Um, this took about two hours, uh, and eventually it became clear that there were parents we could not match with any children. Um, people were saying things like, oh, you know, they may have run into the forest or they may be hiding in someone's backyard and these kind of things. But eventually the lieutenant came up and said, look, we don't have good news for these parents. And, um, you know, we took them into a room and, and told them indeed that their children would not be coming home. Uh, that their children had died. Um, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, the hardest thing I've ever uh, participated in um, of many, many hard things, by far the hardest. Um, and um, and being with them for, for a couple of hours after that, and then, of course, accompanying them through all four of the funerals that took place um, and through some other things that have happened of course as this has gone through the courts and um both the parents have have been found some are are, are being tried and the the shooter the young man is being tried um that's the face of i mean driving to the school 
one had the sense that one was driving toward darkness. I mean, and there, there's this confrontation with emptiness, you know. Um, there are other words. I mean, there are, I mean, there, I mean, you know, I don't know. You know, it's it's worse than emptiness, but, um, and Tara and Hora and everything else, but um, uh, that's the face of darkness, the face of death. Death, death is the face of, of, um, of evil. Um, a couple of years ago, this goes back longer, um, a, a, a young woman in our, in our parish, um, and I, you know, these people gave me permission to talk about, and in fact, this story I'm, is in the book that I'm working on. Um, uh, her brother... Um, in his early 20s, had gone out on Lake Michigan, driven over to the lake to kayak. Um, this was in um, the spring um, of 2019. I was in Canada, actually, with Father John and Brad and uh, and John McMurray, um, studying with Father John um, at Regent College. And uh, we got when we got the call um, that Jacob had gone missing on the lake, um, during a supercell storm that had just, you know, come up on the lake, was there for an hour or two and then dissipated. And in the midst of that, they predict about 13 miles out, he was lost at sea. His kayak was found first and then later his body. When I got back um, from Canada, they had found him. And um, I was sitting in their home um the, the, the sister's home with her husband and their child. And she was saying, you know, we were plant, planting spring flowers. It was a bright sunny day. My mother was over. Our mother was over. Everything was wonderful. But three hours away, you know, Jacob was in the midst of this horrible storm and he was alone. We were okay in our backyard doing the things that humans are supposed to do. But he's out on the lake and 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 lost and alone. And uh, I did what you know, um, what time has taught me, which is just to be there and just listen and sit with the grief and sit with the questions and not interrupt and not speak into what is being reflected to me about their loss. But after about an hour. I did feel leading from the spirit to speak out that Jacob was not alone when he perished on the lake. And that it wasn't just that Jesus was, I think we would say something like he's beside him, you know, but, but the scriptures teach us something deeper that, that Christ is in you, plural and all of us together, but Christ in you, the hope of glory and Christ is inside the experience of Jacob's death, dying with Jacob as he does with, with all human beings. This is the richness and depth of the cross and of God's entering into human death is that mysteriously he is dying with all humans in order to raise us back up into his life. And I think in that moment, Jacob is the face of God as God, um, God perishes and um, he perishes uh, with Jacob, but in hope. 
um, that that's uh, not the end because God has died and has converted, as Baxmas says, the uses of death. Um, it's no longer in the absence of the revelation that death is the enemy, right? Um, in the absence of that, uh, death is just horrific. Death is just final. Death is just an abyss. But because there is a human who's fallen as far into the abyss as it's possible to fall, um, whenever it is that we get as far as we can fall in this life and beyond this life and death, it's on the body of Jesus that we finally fall. Um, we can't fall farther than the body of Christ um, into non-existence. Um, and of course, the body of Christ together with all humans is raised from that pit because he's heard. <clears throat> um, his cries are heard. And with uh, that cry uh, by the spirit, the father uh, command, he is brought back and all of us with him. And uh, so um, that's a, that is a condensation, you know, um, over the past, uh, uh, sorry if it's been a little long, but over the la last, you know, quarter, uh, half hour um, of what we were talking about for about three hours um, at Western. So, what was the response? I mean, how did how did students um, resonate? Yeah, I I, I think um, people were um, connecting with um that they're hearing um you know something real i think um i think what the pastoral task in the face of human death is is to offer credible comfort those, those are the words that i think you know are really really important and so you want to be saying things that are credible when you when you do open your mouth to say anything, right, which is not the first thing, right, beyond I love you, I'm here, you know, we're with, you know, we're with you and so forth and so on. If we're going to say more than that, we want to be offering credible comfort. Mm -hmm. And credible comfort is not, as Hart says, vacuous can't about, you know, this is God, God needed these little ones, Um you know, I, I was at a hospital after these three little children, only only children of this Chaldean family were struck by a boat on Lake Sylvan years ago. Um, the, the, the oldest, a, a male child perished. And then the two little ones that were at the hospital and this doctor comes in and says, look, we don't think we're going to be able to save them. Thankfully, one of them was, but the, the daughters, but, uh, you know, this young seminarian came in, you know, fresh out of seminary and sat down. It was the, you know, the family's pastor, but, you know, large, 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 large parish doesn't know them from the man on the moon, but he sits across from him and says, you know, we, we just have to accept that God needed them, you know, and uh, no, you know, it, it don't put God in, in the, in the middle of this, you know, as the instrument of these children's death. Um, and, and so even in a direct way, 
Um, so, uh, in indirect way, I should say. And so, um, we want to be wise and credible. That was incredible comfort. That's, that's speaking something that's not true, right? Um, uh, the funeral of one of these children was killed at the hospital. Um, this man said, well, they'll live on. Um, and I, I wish I was making this up. But he said, they'll live on when you feel the warm wind on your face at night. Um, you know, when you see the waves crashing on the shore. That's not true. It's just wind. It's just waves. It's water. It's not them. And so that's not credible comfort either. You know, um, you know, um, it's at not least true. Not, at least not in some cheap way. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think with, with a lot of <laughs> comments there might be some way in which there's a there's a deeper sense that they hold true but they're going to be heard cheaply because they're spoken cheaply yeah right yeah it's not yeah the sentiment itself might bear witness to something that's true but when it's said cheaply it can't help but be heard it's like um it's like a piano piece, right? Um you want it's it's how you play there's the notes, but it's how you play the notes often. You could sit down and and play technically play the notes, but don't really recreate what the artist or musician intends to be played because you're not paying attention to those little, you know, notes about how you're supposed to or the or a master of the piece has not told you wait you're supposed this is supposed to have this this feeling to it um Mm -hmm. or this emphasis to it and so forth and so on and so it just lacks wisdom in the way that it's being played um yes yeah and, and and it's so easy for things to be spun as trite to be played, to be played tritely, to be mm-hmm. played with, with a kind of cheesiness yeah. that are, you know, in other hands ha- have a kind of depth and, and sure. vitality to them. For sure. For sure. But I, I just, I, I mean, I, I was, I'm thinking about that because I, I was reading just a couple of days ago, uh, a rabbi, a contemporary rabbi who was talking about, it was, it's in a collection of essays um, on Jewish, Muslim, and Christian readings of the Abraham story. And one of the contributors, um, Arthur Wasco, is talking about Jewish readings of the Abraham story. And he points out how the beginning of Abram's walk with God, God appears to Abram in the Oaks of Mamre, in the Oaks of Mamre. And then connects that to the Jeremiah story. God encounters Jeremiah. Jeremiah, what do you see? I see an almond branch that's blossoming. And he says that to be attentive to God is to notice the mystery that's already at work in nature and in our neighbor, in in the stranger in particular. Abraham sees the stranger and runs out to them. To, to care for them. And that, that, that leads to this kind of opening out to the awareness of God. So there, I mean, that, that's not tried or cheap, right? That sense yeah. of the, the, the light and the, and the, the warmth of the sun, the, the movement of the wind, mm. these things 
they do they do ultimately have they're rooted in the being of God. And if yeah. you're attentive, oh to yeah, them, yeah, yeah, you're attentive to them, then you are coming into contact with with the life that holds all lives together, including right. lives that have ended. But that's not what was being said in that moment, right? right? No, like, no, no. What no, was being no. said in that moment is, is something cheap and which which, which which is really saying, as like some greeting cards say, they live on in your memory. Well, true, right? Yes. Um, but that's your memory. That's not them, mm-hmm. right? And and uh, it's your it, your it's connected to them because it's in your mind, mm-hmm. but they have an existence apart from your memories of them. And they have an existence that is tied to the wind and tied to the waves and so forth, but is not the same thing. And mm-hmm. so we're talking, you know, ontology, <laughs> you know, their, their being is hidden with Christ in God. And, uh, you know, it's not um, their particular being, right. Um, is like, I, I think, of my grandparents now more than I ever have. And sometimes my parents. Um, and I think part of that is not just my memory of them, but because I exist in the communion of saints where they have yes. an ongoing life yes. and their ongoing life um, is kind of coming to my mind from time to time as yes. I need to, uh, probably, and I find in particular moments when I need to hear their voices or to remember how they were in the world um, has been very helpful for me the last week or two, for instance, and in thinking about some questions around Pentecostal and charismatic experience and teaching and and so forth. Um, so they do exist, um, but they also, you know, God has rescued them from the futility of death. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they are not lost to history, to existence, to the universe. They're, they still exist and will exist, you know, mm-hmm. um, as yeah, the persons that they are, right. Um, or were and, and, and remain. So, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I, I just, what I, the reason I'm raising this here is that I I don't want, and I know you don't either, to to leave the impression that reality is fundamentally dualistic, right? No, nope, right? No, no, no. no. What, uh, We're all connected. Yeah, yeah. The inner. It's all connected, but that's it. Yeah. as you say that connectivity in sort of modern popular Kant and I mean C A N T. Um, yeah. is, you know, is, uh, is, as you, you will use the word cheap. Um, yeah. it's just bad philosophy, right? Um, and yeah. so, um, it's not, uh, connected to the human God. Um, and, and with faith in the human God and mm. drawing that meaning that everything is connected, um, is not coming from the human God. It's coming from this, sort of just thing that they're positing that everything is, is connected, but that's, well, yeah, that's another completely, that's a different thing than what we're talking. It about. is. And I don't think it is really even a coherent vision. I think it's what, what ends up happening is we, there are turns of phrase yeah. celebration of life rather than a funeral. Yeah. 
or you know they live on in our hearts or they live yeah. on in our memory like yeah. these are what they are are reduced philosophy like philosophies that have been reduced to pills right over the counter medications for right. grief right and loss and right. they're that's good you know fundamentally inhumane right yeah so they're but the the things those pills are made from right like like yeah. those things have there, there's weight and, there. There's, and some people may be grasping for the real, yeah. right? Yeah. And articulating the wave or the wind or they, they intuit there's a connection. They haven't been introduced to the connection, but that they intuit that. And so we don't, I mean, obviously, um, none of these things we want to dismiss out of hand. Um, no, no, no. But, but, but still got to, we got to call BS for what it is. I, I yeah. want to, I want to push you to talk a little bit more about this. Pentecostal, charismatic, as you're naming it, the different orientations to death that are there. Just, I mean, I have so many thoughts and feelings of my own, but I, I want to hear mm. you. I'd yeah. love to hear your account, and then let's hear Brewer's account and see yeah. see what harmonizes there. What what you are yeah. starting to recognize and learn about your own history? And- yeah. Well, I, I you know, I mean, we my my father my father was violently killed in Vietnam by a, by a mortar in the middle of an evacuation of a fire base near Cambodia in the summer of 1970, his blown apart body was put back together as well as they might. And in a casket with glass over it. And, um, and, uh, he very much looked dead. I mean, there wasn't anything uh, a mortician could do, you know, and I, my five-year-old memory is of, you know, this person in the glass and not at all the person that I had last encountered at the back of our station wagon where he had said, you know, I'm leaving, take care of your mother and children, your sisters, you know. Um, And, uh, uh, but, you know, at that funeral, there were tears, you know, um, and, uh, you know, um, that that's, that's a holiness. That's, that's a good sacred thing. There was the body was there. We went to the graveside and lowered his body into the ground. Uh, there was mourning there. There wasn't like a kind of triumphal thing where, um, we're not connected to this. We're, we're, we are <laughs> connected to this death and brought, drawn together by this death and this death is hard and difficult and horrific and and uh, and everything. Um, as I got, you know, I, you know, I was sort of wrenched out of that Pentecostal childhood church mm-hmm. into a more sort of freewheeling second wave charismatic thing, and ended up at Oral Roberts. It was a moment like this that really a moment of accidental immediate death uh, when the shuttle challenger blew up in uh, January of, um, of 1986, uh, just before we went into a chapel service. Um, and the leader of that, of our, the pastoral leader of the university campus at the time, we all got in there. These were mandatory events that all students attended. This was a chapel of only the undergraduates. But um, he said at the beginning of the service, like, we've this horrific thing has happened, this tragedy has happened. 
Um, and, and we're sorry for it, but we're leaving that. He's, these are the words he, we're leaving that outside the walls of the sanctuary because we're here to praise Jesus. And, you know, they launched into the hoot nanny with the guitars and we had, we had actually more than one drum kit, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was ORU, you know, there's music school, uh, you know, they had the singers and the whole nine yards and, uh, about six or eight bars into the whatever song, I don't remember what song we were singing. I sat down, you know, my, my 20 year old self sat down and was like, I don't know what this is, but this, I'm not, this is, I'm not part of this. Because uh, if we cannot allow lament into the room, if we can't allow, and I, I wasn't thinking, I didn't use the word lament in my head. I was 20 years old. I didn't know. I just knew that this wasn't how to handle this. And that actually there's a problem because if we cannot connect our gathering and what's happening to these deaths, then we're in trouble because this is a massive part of human experience. And if we're, we're in church and we're leaving that experience out, that's not what the Pentecostal experience was. But my experience in that charismatic thing was this is outside of, you know, what we're about when we're here in church. And, um, you know, thankfully, within a few weeks, you know, I read Irenaeus and God enters the world in order to die with us, to suffer with us. He's the suffering God. He's interested not in destroying the world, but in uh, re re transfiguring the world, of making it whole again. It's, he's made it good. All things are good, including human bodies and so forth, which just started completely revolutionizing my life. But in the moment of that particular uh, meeting, Charles Farah, the you know uh, theologian, mm -hmm. uh, member of the faculty, who, as far as I could remember, the only time a faculty member from the School of Theology spoke in an ORU chapel. And that, <laughs> that tells you something right there. But he had lost his wife to cancer uh, the year before. And it was the same service where the guy said, we're leaving this all out. He gets into the pulpit and says, I want to tell you um, about the experience of my wife's death last year to cancer. And I want to talk to you about how we different ways she was dying of cancer. I was watching her die. I was walking alongside my one flesh union as she died. I came to understand that uh, we were suffering with Jesus participating in his cross. Then he said the thing that really was interesting to me, which was that their experience was that God was inside their suffering and dying with her. And, uh, and there was this interchange that was happening and, uh, that, that was salvation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so then I was like, whew, okay, I want to know yeah. more about that. <laughs> yeah. Brewer. Cause that's comfort real. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. credible that's comfort. Yeah. That's the credibility you were talking about and therefore, and therefore comforting. You know, I, I think one of the things I love about that phrase, credible comfort, it's related to what I was calling, you know, the over-the-counter medication a moment ago for loss yeah. is th those things are comfort that is, they're miracle comforts. They're magic comforts. Yeah. They're comforts that, that are, are meant to work incredibly. That bypass and, the crop. And, and they bypass, they bypass pain. And I, I think, 
I think, interestingly, I, I've been reading Shejua uh, Miwosh again, the <laughs> poet. As, as you do. Not, as one does, right? As one does. <laughs> uh, Nobel Prize winner for um, his work and a poet for like 70 years of publishing. Like he, yeah. he, he published for a long, long time. And toward the end of his life, he wrote this poem. Um, it, it's entitled Prayer. A lot of his poems have that shape. But I just listen to the end of it, and it's too precisely to your point. And then, Brewer, I want you to weigh in on your own experience. Uh, let's see where to start. I won't read the whole poem. It's all worth – it starts with approaching 90 and still with a hope that I could tell it, say it, blurt it out. If not before people, at least before you, who nourish me with honey and wormwood. That's how the that's how the poem starts, right? Wow. I'm almost 90 years old and I'm still hoping to be able to pray, which is ah, like God, like such wisdom in that. Yeah, truth. I, I've lived long enough to realize that I still want to learn how to pray. Yeah. But then beautiful. at the very end, at the very end, this is this is what his prayer comes down to. Liberate me from guilt, real and imagined. Give me certainty that I toiled for your glory. In the hour of the agony of death, help me with your suffering, which cannot save the world from pain. Yeah. The hour of the agony of death, help me with your suffering, which cannot save the world from pain. And... Helpful. That, that's what you're naming, right? That the, the human God dies to be our help. His suffering is our help. But it's not the kind of help that saves us from pain. It it allows us to be in the pain, hopefully. Like we, yeah. we grieve, but not without hope in the language yeah. of both. Right. So Brooke, talk to us a little bit about about your experience and what, what starts to come up for you in, in hearing Father Ken's testimony. Ken's yeah, there's a few things that come to mind. I mean, part of what, which is something I've been thinking about a lot, man, and, um, and no coincidence, I've thought about it, honestly, a lot since my own ordination to the priesthood, which is now just just over a year ago, is that um, that's that sanitization that you were talking about and that sort of distance from death has been at work, you know, in my life and at many of the, many of the places and communities that, that I've been a part of. I mean, part of, you know, part of what I feel is a kind of, um, I don't know how to name it exactly, but just a, just a, a very strong sense that, man, yeah, there's been so much that, that I've been kept from in some ways that I'm just fortunate. Like I'm really grateful that a lot of people who are the closest people to me in my life, I've not had to not had to witness their dying, but the deaths that I have encountered either wasn't close enough to, to enter into that space or was too young or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or in so many of the services, it was that kind of, we're not going to give, you know, we're not going to give voice to that kind of lament because this is a celebration of their life. And so, mm -hmm. um, one, one thing that, that strikes me is 
there are, especially in the deaths that feel particularly untimely, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a real quick scramble to meaning make. Yeah. Which I'm, I feel very like I feel sympathetic to because I think it, it it's I think it probably I think it comes from a deeply human place. I mean we we are meaning makers, um, but it ends up being a sort of inability to actually confront death. I mean part of what I'm gripped by and so much of what you said, uh, Father Kenneth, is this kind of this confrontation that we want to be saved from, and it's a kind of meaning making that skirts around that confrontation. Um, But it's also interesting that there are some, some deaths that I've encountered, if, if even only from a certain distance where that wasn't the case. And as I look back, those were the lives where they were, I don't know how to, I don't know quite how to say this, Chris, I know you've reflected on some of this, even with your own grandparents, but they were lives that were lived more fully. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't, there wasn't the grief of mm-hmm. um, this, you know, this was not a clean ending kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think about my great grandmother who was, I guess, 89 when she died and had cancer. They caught it late and it just kind of ravaged her. Uh, and, and she passed away and there was real lament at her loss. I mean, she was the matriarch of our family and was kind of the, the icon, I think of our family in a lot of ways. I mean, she pointed so many, um, Christward, but so there wasn't a scramble to kind of meaning make and, and skirt around that. But I think, um, Again, sorry, these are just kind of observations. I'm just sort of remembering even some of this as I talk about it. But the other thing, I guess, that's worth mentioning in my experiences, having been raised in the kind of classical Pentecostal tradition, is that most of the time, the confrontation with death was not about actually confronting the death of the person who were here. Uh mm-hmm and looking at in the casket, but it was you out there need to think about your own impending death. And it was kind of the vehicle for evangelization. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, one of the, one of the reasons I'm interested in the two of you telling your stories back to back, so to speak, is that I think the Pentecostalism that father Kenneth knew when he was five was a different animal from the one you knew when you were five. Right. And it was, and it has a lot to do with what he was naming as the, the kind of neo charismatic movement. Yeah. Right. There was already that influence. Well, it works back on the churches that we think of as classical Pentecostals. I mean, I, I, I know lots of folks who listen to us, you know, aren't Pentecostal, but for those of us who were, and I think this is true of whatever your tradition happens to be, if you're if you are in the American evangelical spiritualities, this there are exceptions, of course, to this, especially for minorities and immigrant communities. But if you're a part of like the dominant forms of American evangelicalism, Protestant American evangelicalism, American Protestantism and evangelicalism, then you 
you'll this will almost certainly be true in some way for your tradition as well. And that is, there's there's this dramatic shift in the '80s that has been built up to in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. That thing gets hooked in with new prosperity, the the political, social, and political shifts that are happening, and America's place as a superpower and I mean, there, there's so many different factors, right? On the other side of the civil rights movement, on the other side of the Vietnam War, and it, what it creates in those particular churches is a forgetting of their own past and a forgetting that, like, a sundering of their own inherit, like, they cut themselves off from their own inheritance. And the, the Pentecostalism that you would have known, right, is miles and miles and miles away from the, that same movement as, Father Kenneth had known it, and as I knew it um, when when I was younger, and, and I grieve that. I mean, that's another kind of death. I mean, here we're talking about the death mm-hmm. of people, but yeah. that there's 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 death of traditions too, and death of yeah. movements, and death of wisdom. Yeah, and there was something about the Pentecostalism that I knew a little bit, and Father Ken that you knew a little bit, which was still closely connected to the wisdom of the movement as it emerged, mostly in black led communities, mm-hmm. deeply shaped by the experience of, of black Christians mm-hmm. in America. You yeah. know, former like William Seymour is, is the face of that for, for many of us, although he surely does not stand alone, but you know, Seymour, he's the son of slaves. Yeah. He's the son of slaves. Yeah. Who is now called by God into this, this ministry of working toward the in this moment integration of the people of the earth and the nations. I mean, he's, he's intentionally embodying calling for insisting upon law breaking integration in worship. Right? Like when, I mean, this is Jim Crow America and he's insisting, no, like we have to pray for one another and, and, testify to one another and 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 he's going out of his way to make sure that that's happening in his ministry and it's out of that wisdom that there's a there's a focus on jesus as the crucified one walter holdenbaker i I refer to this all the time but i i don't i don't think i can refer to it too much walter holdenbaker is the first person to do phd work on the pentecostal movement and he says like pentecostalism in those early years, the first decade or so of the Pentecostal movement, late 1800s, early 1900s, it is a, it's a form of blood and wound mysticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the focus is on Jesus yeah. as the companion with us in the sorrows of life. Like Jesus a- knows our Absolutely. This and that wisdom was, was deteriorating, but it was still present when we were young. Yeah. Ken, and I, so and I don't late, know what it was by the time Brewer in the was. late sixties and early seventies in the, 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 the pair, the Pentecostal church, church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, that I was uh, being attending with my mother and my sisters. Um, this, this congregation was made up of, of people who were my age and older for the most part, lot, you know, late fifties, but sometimes much older, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s, uh, people who had, you know, been young when these revivals were taking place. And uh, they were mystics. That's, I, I, I'm understanding that more and more. I mean, I, they're the, they were working poor for the most part. 
Um, so they weren't, you know, absolutely impoverished, but they were close and, you know, hardworking people. And uh, and they would come together. And the result of their corporate worship was always tears. It, would, mm. it ended in wailing. It ended in crying. And as, as Simeon says, you know, they were baptizing themselves over and over again uh, every Sunday with their tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and of their mystical experiences, uh, with God. And so I do, I remember these people just at tears, you know, <laughs> on their cheeks as in the moment of the altar call, right? They were having these rare, not every moment of their lives in the midst of, of lives that are, that have real suffering. Um, yes. you know, uh, acquainted with, as the human God is with suffering, Isaiah tells us, right? They're pouring themselves out to God yeah. and finding joy in the baptism of their tears. So different religion in some mm-hmm. sense, in the, in the best sense of that word, than the thing that occurred, um, later, mm-hmm. um, in the eighties and, and so forth. Um, and, and when you were talking, Chris, about the meeting of these faces, um, the meeting of, uh, death as enemy, death as affliction, but then death as, um, participation in life, uh, that has been transfigured by the human God. I, I, most, the most recent experience I've had is, is a human experience of a human person, a man who is, uh, just a few years younger than me, but I think of him as a son, member of my congregation who special needs um, since his birth, but who was in charge of our acolytes at the parish. <clears throat> and as we approached the pandemic, he began to have lots and lots of back pain and lots and lots of mobility issues and so forth. And we have during the pandemic, he's been almost housebound with debilitation and it was diagnosed as various forms of barre and, and other things and autoimmune, but just has received a diagnosis from the University of Michigan of late stage um, ALS. And so I went to visit him in his mother's and him and his mother's home last week before I went to, to Western. And this man is a picture to me right now of this battle I think because of his kind of almost imposed by his special needs innocence and kind of naivete, his simplicity is he is both battling this thing, you know, that he's dealing with, but he's also simultaneously embracing it in a way, both battling it and embracing it in a way that's holy, that's sacred. And that I don't, I, I, I like I don't want to say more than that, except because it's just so um, it, it's so crushing the weight of it. Um, That's right. And there's, there's but that that image. Well, it's the image of Jesus nailed to the tree and it's the image of Jacob in the grasp of the wrestler, you know, in the in the grasp of the opponent. And you cannot tell standing where we stand, Mm -hmm. you can't tell all that that is like you can, you can give witness to aspects of it. This is, this is where, you know, our friend Bradley's distinction between the crucifixion and the cross, 
right? That yeah. the crucifixion is the work of Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. Cross is the work of God. God yeah. But standing where we stand, I mean, you can't see all it's of hard that. It's hard to. You, you, and you yeah. can't quite tell where the crucifixion ends and the cross begins. So, so there, know, are tier, there, there are tears of wrestling, but there's tears of surrender. Mm-hmm. And it's happening simultaneously, and it's sacred. And and as he said, you know, this is sad news, but we're but but we still have hope in the sadness. And our hope is that we're going to become prayer. I mean, that as I said to Scott, you are going to become prayer. That's what you are becoming um, on behalf of our community. What we would love to see is the diagnosis we thought was about Barre and they were going to. He was going to be better, and he was going to start helping our little ones again uh, serve at the altar. And and it doesn't look now like it's that. And so we're sad, but not without some hope. And it's just still like, well, yeah, one way of getting at that hard. And we have to be so careful there because these are such holy things, such fragile things. I know, in some ways. But you know, if you think about there's a there's a way in which so if we if we shift to thinking aesthetically, if you think about poems or or novels or films or paintings, like there there's a glory that comes in in the in the whole of it, whatever it happens to be, and it might be unfinished in some ways, but still be enough to be itself. Right there, there are ways in which. You know, if if I if I find out right since I'm reading Miwosh, if I find out that you know he had he had a number of poems in a notebook that he never finished, but someone wants to give me that notebook anyway, like it has something to it. I want that, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's it doesn't have to be completed in order to and finished in the perfect sense in order for there to be enough of it to have the holiness, the liveliness that, that gives it the, the transforming capacities that the life of God has. It's, it's a life giving reality. And I think in some ways there are people that we love that if they were to die at 50, they've it's too soon. Their life is unfinished, but they've already done enough. They've already become Sure enough sure. that the prayer they will be is a prayer we recognize. And if it were, if they live to be 70, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. But it would be the same prayer. Sure. It would have the same integrity. Yeah. If they live to be 90, thank God, but it wouldn't be a different prayer. Yeah. Right. And I think the, what, what we should aspire to is to recognize that the, the, the actual just sheer length of our life isn't, is, isn't really the point. Yeah. Right? The number of years we live, again, not that any of us should be wanting to cut our lives short or right. anyone else's be cut short, because I do think there is there is an evil in having our lives ruptured before they can be completed. Yeah, you know, if I die at fifty before God gets the work done in me to make my prayer coherent. Yeah, then yeah, that's tragic. Like, yeah, utterly. Tra- yeah, but if I die at fifty. But God has done that work. Yeah. God has made that prayer coherent. Yeah. It's sad, yeah. but it's not tragic yeah. because there isn't there isn't the same kind of law. So I think yeah. we have to be able to 
to recognize that there can be there can be sorrow and sadness that's not toxic. It's not poisoned in any way yeah. by the rupturing that that death brings. And with my own grandparents, I mean, we had reached a point. I mean, that there is death at all is is a problem. But that their deaths came when they did. Those were gifts because they were at that point, their brains and bodies were working against their personhood, right? That they're with, with dementia and so on. Like they were suffering more and more and more. And there was a kind of, they were ready for it. I mean, my grandfather was praying, let me go home. Let yeah. me come. Home. Yeah. yeah. And that is, it ought not to be, but what we're grieving there is not his passing, but then we're grieving the fallenness of the world. world and there, there's a difference there, right? So I think like with because my grandfather. We, our, our communion with them is still ruptured, you know. But but yeah. yes, but yeah. it's it's not ruptured because of something they failed to do. Yeah, right. It's right, ruptured right. because of the, the corruption the fallenness the of the world. Yeah. And what that means is that he, he's able to be present to me and me to him yeah. without unfinished business. Yeah. So that then I, I can grieve that the yeah. world is such a place that he has to suffer that at the end of his life. Right? Yeah. That, that, that the way that dementia ravaged his body and mind, I hate that, but that's yeah. not, that's, that's something he suffered. It's not something that he made me suffer. And yeah. I, I think these are the kinds of distinctions that help us start to get at why scripture and the Christian tradition is always saying both what David is saying and yeah. what John Barrett is saying, right? Yeah, what, you, what you quoted at the beginning of this conversation, we have to say both of those both things, of those things and more to get at all that dying and death is for human beings. Yeah, and more. And I, and, I, I would like to share a little bit about my conversation with uh, Patrick Patty Lynch, Patrick Patty yeah, please do. Mm -hmm. uh, Lynch. He his he is the third generation of a family Irish Catholic immigrant family. Um, and, uh, and they're, they have a, they have a, a chain of mortuaries here in, um, in the Detroit and Southeast Michigan area. Um, uh, Edward Joseph Lynch is the man who, the grandfather, uh, who started this, uh, mortuary and, um, he was seeing, um, mistreatment, of human bodies in uh, the process of handling dead bodies and burying them. <clears throat> and he was convinced that how we treated the most vulnerable human beings, which he saw as dead human beings, um, that would be, that would, that would migrate into how we treat children or the poor or women or the, you know, yeah those with diseases and so forth. Um, and so we had to treat the most vulnerable of humans, which are dead humans with great dignity. And he likened them and his, 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 uh, his son, Thomas, the famous poet and essayist, Thomas Lynch wrote a book called the undertaking. He's also written other books on poetry, Ireland and things like this was friend with Jim Harrison, the novelist, <coughs> um, deep, close friends with him. This is Patty's uncle. Um, you know, he talks a lot about how dead bodies are like we, they treat dead bodies in their mortuaries like babies that have, you know, been, um, you know, newly born, you know, 
And so the handling of them is the same kind of care that we handle newborns for two reasons. They're the most vulnerable of human beings. Um, but also they are signs to us of a new creation of a world that is coming to this world. The dead body itself is planted in the ground, is planted in the hope of uh, resurrection, not just for themselves, but for the cosmos. That, you know, the power of resurrection that resides in the dead body of a human. <coughs> so pardon me. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, this is why, you know, the, the, you know, in the, in the first, the first Christians, you know, they would parade the body through, you know, the town and people, and in the middle, middle East, you can still see is they want to touch the body. They want to be close to the body. They want to handle the body because there's something blessed about these dead bodies. Um, and, uh, so at one time we were receiving the body of this man who had been for 40 years a prisoner, uh, in the state penitentiary system and was a member of Holy Redeemer for the final five years of his life. And, uh, it was difficult because there was no family that would claim him at the mortuary. There was, uh, disconnection with his family and so forth and so on. So trying to get him out of the mortuary was a big paperwork problem, problem. And Patty helped me, um, get his body. And I met Patty at the mortuary at, when they, the county morgue had released his body. And we, we met there and he started talking to me about this. I began to hear, you know, all the things that Chris has said, you know, about the dead body of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. how it is, you know, not just, you know, in, in dying on the cross, but by, you know, being placed in the tomb and just, and, and, and on Holy Saturday, there's that, there, there's that inactivity, there's that stillness, there's that finality of death from which, you know, as Athanasius says, he's descending towards non-being. Um, and, you know, he, he falls lower than any other human. Um, you know, it's not this kind of thing where, while his body lays in the tomb, his disembodied self is down, you know, kicking ass and so forth and so on. But, you know, from the dead body of Jesus, there's this radical fecundity, this radical creativity, this radical life-giving force that burst forth from um, the uh, the stillness of God. Um, I was connecting all of these things as he's talking about bodies um, and how they treat bodies like little babies, uh, their vulnerability. And, um, and it brought to mind the story that Eric Peterson tells of when he was, he was, um, caretaking some parishes in Scotland that Matt and Julie Canlis, um, were taking care of for years. Um, and it's documented in that film Godspeed, but Eric and his children were there. And he said, you know, if somebody dies, you're going to, you know, be in charge of these, whatever happens, you're going to have to preach the funeral when you're caretaking these churches for seven, eight weeks, whatever it is. But otherwise you can go see the coast and so forth and so on. Well, someone died and they had the burial rites at the church and there was an undertaker. This was his role and he was dressed for the role. And they had, you know, the procession of the dead body through the village and all the villagers, whether they attended the rites or not, stop in the street and, there's this procession through the heart of the village and everybody stopped and paying attention and, uh, you know, stopping their work and the bells are ringing and all this. And they go to the cemetery and the care, the undertaker gets out of the, you know, the hearse where he's had Eric sit by the body. And then he gets out and says, well, now we're going to process to the graveside and 
um, and have the the rights at the ground there. Um, and you're going to be in, do this, this and that thing. And so he's listening to them, but then he takes him uh, arm in arm to the entrance to the cemetery with his left arm around Eric, um, the son of Eugene. And he, he, with his right arm, he sweeps across the cemetery and he says, I, laddie, this field is the acre of God in which are planted the seeds of resurrection, you know. And um, I was coming out of, out of, uh, out of Holland. Here, the cemeteries are all kind of hidden, you know. But in Holland, there's a cemetery right in the town. Like you can't, you go in and out of the town. You have to pass through to get to Holland. You have to pass through all these grave markers. Mm-hmm. After I was talking to the students, I'm leaving and I'm thinking about all these things. I'm thinking about my conversations with Patty. Chris is teaching about the dead body of Jesus. I'm thinking about Eric and things I've been sharing with the students. And it occurred to me that I was passing through these fields, these tombstones, and that all these dead bodies are the hope of resurrection that are planted in the earth. And at the, at the trumpet blast, these bodies not only come out of the graves as they, some of them came up when Jesus died. I mean, read Matthew's gospel, but I mean, resurrection starts breaking out, but um, the, uh, in the moment of Christ's death, the rocks are split. Uh, the curtain of the temple is torn in two and the bodies of the saints come up out of the, the ground at the, at the, at the, at the eschaton, you know, these cemeteries are the places where Genesis is going to break forth, not just for the earth, but the whole cosmos is going to be be resurrected and transfigured into God's glory by all of this, all of these bodies that have been planted um, in the ground. So uh, anyway, that's uh, uh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, just yesterday, Brew, you weigh in real quick before I go. I don't want to change the subject yet. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I love that and, and how, I mean, I think going back a little bit, you know, we want to say more simply than God is with us in this, right? But that God is inside of it because of, because of Jesus mm-hmm. and that, so, you know, how could it be otherwise than this is the site of this resurrection and life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, everything fits inside everything else for right now. And we, we can't quite tell, you know, the, the wheat and the tares grow together. Right. Yeah. And, and so our tears of sorrow and our tears of, of panic, like, like all of that, we, we just have to live it the best we can. Yeah. Like, holding all that together at once. I, I was thinking about this yesterday. So I, I was preaching Lazarus story yesterday and a few things struck me that I've, I've not noticed before. And I think maybe a fitting place for us to kind of wrap this conversation up. So, so one is the different ways in which Martha and Mary respond to Jesus. So, mm. so when, when Lazarus is sick, and, I, and I, I can never tell the story without just kind of underscoring the fact that we don't have testimony of this family elsewhere in Scripture. So we know Mary and Martha from Luke, but not Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And I don't know exactly what to make of that other than I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that 
John isn't doing something by drawing from Luke's gospel the story of Mary and Martha and the story of Lazarus and putting them together. But be that as it may, I didn't bring that up in the sermon. <laughs> I was already doing too much in the sermon. But what I what I Me talked too. about was <laughs> Jesus. What I, what I talked about is Jesus loves Mary and Martha and waits two days when he hears the news, then tells the disciples, you know, Lazarus is asleep and we must go up to mm, him. Mm-hmm. And we hear that as Jesus is talking about death. He's using sleep as a metaphor, but that's not true. Jesus, George McDonald's dead right about this. Jesus does not speak in metaphor. Metaphors are what we need to try to catch up to what are, whatever it is that Jesus was doing. So when he says asleep, he means asleep. And we, he, but he also knows we mean by that death, as he later says, you know, Lazarus is dead and that, so they hit, they head up the disciples and Thomas, you know, the fatalist, <laughs> let us go that we may die with him. Right. Which is one of the things I love is that detail. Let us go that we may die with yes. him because he thinks that means you know, we'll, we'll die protecting Jesus, right? We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll be the heroes standing between him and the forces of death. Yeah. But of course, what the spirit means is, Oh, you're going to die with him. <laughs> you're going to die with him in ways you cannot imagine. Right. Yeah. And would not even know you want to imagine. Yeah. So they head up. Martha comes out to meet Jesus. Like she goes out to meet him before he arrives. Yeah. And she says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that, that refrain is going to show up through the story multiple times. And they have that exchange. And it's very clear that Martha is convinced. I mean, she says in that same breath, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now the father will grant you whatever you ask. Right. So she's not even it's tremendous faith. Not, exactly. It's, it's tremendous faith, tremendous faith. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. I know he will. The resurrection of the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. And then Martha goes back to Mary and says, the teacher is calling for you, which is Martha intuiting, I think, what it is that needs to happen for Mary. And so Mary goes out and these mourners go with her. These mourners follow her into this encounter with Jesus. And I didn't talk about this in the sermon yesterday, but I do think there's a way in which like prayer that brings mourning and mourners with it into the presence of Jesus. Like that's, that's where transformation happens. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mary brings these mourners with her. Jesus sees them. He's moved. Where have you laid him? Mary says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where have you laid him? You know, take me to the body. They do. And then we're told that people are deeply moved when they see Jesus crying. Oh, how he loved him. Oh, how he loved him. And again, this is a fascinating part of the story to me. Why does Jesus love Lazarus? Like there's no characterization of Lazarus other than that. He's ill. He doesn't speak. Even when he's resurrected, he doesn't speak. We know nothing about him unless he is the figure from Luke. Who's a pity, pitiable figure left at the gate. Right. But regardless of who he is, Jesus loves him and there's no reason to love him. But he doesn't say, you know, Jesus, you know, he was a particular kind of person. Like Mary anointed his feet and, you know, she sat at his feet and, you know, Mark. Yeah, right. 
Martha has There's, tremendous yeah, faith. And Lazarus then, does nothing. <laughs> he says nothing. He does nothing. Right. And Jesus loves him. Like the right. paralytic lowered, you know, the friends lower him. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't even talk. That Like, I'm, I'm a sinner. Yeah. yeah. And John Swinton has suggested that perhaps Lazarus was was disabled in uh, some way. That's why he doesn't speak and why yeah. he's living with these, as I said in the as sermon yesterday, this is a direct quote, that Jesus, when he's among us, he doesn't want perfect people. He, yeah. he wants this old mouthy woman, Martha, a yeah. very strange mystic sister yeah. and, a, and a man who doesn't say a damn word. Right? Like, like yeah. Those are the people Jesus wants to be with. Right? Good, good. But then this is, this is what struck me. Jesus call you know tells the father this is what I'm doing, but I, I I think what is happening here is that Jesus waits so that Lazarus can die. Yeah, like the question no, keep no, no question about it, and, and he's giving Lazarus the completion of his life. He's yeah. giving Lazarus this moment of death and letting letting him die in a way that is a ceiling of what his life is. And then, and this is why they, the, some in the crowd, the Jews, as John calls them, the Judeans, they say, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept his friend from dying? Yeah. And the answer is no, 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 he could not have Yeah, because it's the same question in the Gethsemane. Yeah. Can't, you know, if it is possible, let right. this cup pass to me, but it's not possible. Right. There is no other way. Yeah. And what, and I think at least the dimension of Jesus grief, you know, so he's deeply grieved in spirit. We're told is that we still haven't come to terms with that is not possible. Mm -hmm. God is not the God because there is no such God Mm -hmm. who can keep us from dying. Yeah. And when we see miracles, we think, Oh, there's a proof of a power that could keep us from dying. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have, his friend from dying. No, no, he couldn't. <laughs> and here's why. Not only because sin has to be dealt with through the, the undoing of death from inside of it, but also because human lives have to be completed. Yeah. yeah. They have to be finished there. Yeah. In order for a human life to be a human life, it has to have a beginning and an end. And, and, yeah. and so Jesus cannot, yeah. it would be a violation of the integrity of Lazarus's being all things right. coming into being, um, having their being must pass out of being. Yeah. And that's why I think one dimension of this is a lot of what passes as hatred for death, which I think we are called sure. to, to recognize death as the enemy of God, yeah. turns out to be hatred for finitude. Sure. Our limit at all. Yeah. yeah. And that is not good. Like, right, right. It is good right. that I'm limited. It right. is good that I have For lots it's of reasons. Good Exactly, precisely. Yeah. So then Jesus... When but our finitude him, is not the end. Nah. Exactly. No, no, absolutely. Our yeah. finitude is meant for yeah. infinite. And every but miracle, every miracle in time presumes, uh, you know, de- de- I mean, you know, people, people are by the art of doctors or by medicine or by all sorts of things, avoid death in a given moment from prayer, whatever it might be. Um, and, uh, but they're going to die, <laughs> you know, I mean, the person, you know, who is cancer free, you know, after all of that suffering, 
uh, is still going to die. 20, well, 50. Yes. And, yeah. and I think this, this goes Ken, exactly to the point you were making about the Pentecostal and the charismatic in that the, the Pentecostal, the wisdom that we were naming there coming from Seymour and, and others in the Pentecostal tradition was to die and to be with the Lord, the death of this existence of things, the openness to the kingdom of God, the, the, the eschatology, whatever its faults, it was still an eschatology of hoping for the kingdom of God. Like for the, for the end of the world as we know it, so that the world of God can come. Yeah. But the charismatic movement you're naming was an attempt to make this world interminable. It was an attempt to do with this order and with our bodies this this kind of endless prolongation, make yeah. it last as long as possible, yeah. reach as far as possible. Yeah. And the power of God becomes a resource for prolonging our life, extending our influence, right? Reaching out and stretching out the, the extent of our tents, as we would say, right? Yes. And that is a denial, not of death, instead but of finitude. Accept, instead of accepting our finitude, accepting our limitation. We, it's an attempt to try to use the infinity of God. We, to overcome our limits. Which the humanity of Jesus accepts, you know? I mean, yeah, the human that, God that accepts limit, limitedness. The human God accepts his finitude and so forth and so on. And it's precisely his acceptance of it that is the room in which the infinite dwells. Yeah. So, right? The infinite dwells inside of Jesus' humility and patience, yeah. his quietness. And it's why Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's why he wants to be with those people. But yeah. then this is the detail that I ended on in the sermon. When Jesus calls Lazarus forth, the text says, and the dead man came out. Yeah. That Jesus brought him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not, not out as one who once yeah, had yeah. been dead. Dead man walking. He made him dead. Yeah. He made it possible for Lazarus to live yeah. with that kind of death. Yeah. The kind of death that Jesus was already living. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. just to make sure we don't miss that point, the very next thing that happens is John tells us everyone begin to, Jesus' enemies begin to gather forces to put Jesus to death. Yeah. And threaten Lazarus. And yes, they Mary, do. And Mary anoints Jesus for burial. Yeah. That when Mary saw her brother come out of that tomb, she recognized that's a dead man. That is not a man who was Ooh. dead a few moments ago and is now alive. Lord have mercy. My brother is a dead man. And so is the man who called him out. Yeah. And she that's why she anoints Jesus. Yeah. Like the wow. response is not revival. The response is not yeah. speaking in tongues and dancing. Yeah. Look at what our God can do. Yeah. The response is tears yeah she weeps yeah because she knows what this means right yeah. so i to me that 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 well, story i think gets right at the heart boy, of this that's a mystic right there she's that mary is a perceptive person yeah yeah i mean think about how astounding that is right she sees what just happened yeah with her brother as and what she does because i think of the cross you know, says, the dead man came out yeah. So um, I'd love to hear from each of you as we wrap this up. I mean, how does that does that seem to get at that difference between the Pentecostal and charismatic sensibilities you were naming? Go ahead, Chris. Christopher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it. I think it does. I mean, I think it's especially helpful. You know, this kind of God's not going to violate our our creaturely integrity. We see that lived out, right, and embodied in Christ. I, 
there, there is a question. I don't, I don't want to derail this and I'm, I'm kind of sorry to ask it because that was so, <laughs> so wonderful. Um, but I do wonder, I mean, it, it seems really difficult to know the difference or even the difference within ourselves. I mean, surely all these things are there present in us where we're praying against the finitude versus praying against death. Does that make sense? Maybe say a little bit more. Like, like you're, you're naming that kind of what, what we're so upset about is more often than not the finitude, right? Kind of, we don't want to be these kinds of creatures who are finite, Mm -hmm. right? We're outraged by that, or we lament that, you know, we mourn that, whatever the case is. But I wonder, I'm just thinking kind of pastorally here, like, what does it mean to it in, engage that space in ways that is a kind of full embrace of the creatures that we are, but also a willingness to name death for what it is, both in its being enemy and yeah. this being transfigured? Yeah, we're resisting. I mean, we're, we, we've had this woman in our congregation who's been going through uh, uh, breast cancer uh, diagnosis. Um, and treatment, uh, both uh, chemo- chemotherapy and surgery. Um, and um, we've been fighting that in various ways, um, you know, taking meals to the family, I mean, in the whole congregation and other people, uh, being with them, sitting with them, praying with them, anointing them. We are resisting um, her, her, her story, um, not reaching completion. Um, we're resisting the, the enemy of her soul, both in being a young, young mother with children that she's raising and uh, with with lots of life in front of her. Um, but we're, we're not, and I think what Chris is saying, we don't want to uh, be people who are resisting the finitude or limitedness of this experience, embrace and you know, trying to um, escape the hardness of it. Or, you know, saying, well, we're, you know, kind of I, I'll, another story. We, the, <laughs> this is the only way I know how to sometimes. We, this is this. This is an example of what I think we're trying to get at. Um, many years ago, um, I was a young man was born at 27 weeks gestation and with very underdeveloped lungs. And he spent um, eight months in one hospital, several more months at University of Michigan and so forth. But I was with that family and kind of walking through this with them. We entered into the experience of his finitude, his suffering, his limitation, which was radical. He's translucent. You can see everything inside this baby. Um, he, he, he grows, but he suffers. He grows, he suffers, and all this kind of stuff using paralytics and all kinds of things to keep him alive while his lungs develop and so forth and so on. Very delicate circumstance situation of entering into suffering with this family, not knowing the outcome. But people would come from time to time for 15 minutes, 30 minutes or whatever, and literally stand at a distance from, I I remember this, um, not getting close to the baby, not, laying hands, but standing at a distance and sort of cast, I mean, forgive me, but casting spells toward the child, you know, sort of, you know, be healed, be well, be, you know, and then leave, you know, 
And I think there's a difference there. It's kind of like we're, we're not entering into the patient process of this child's healing and which may not end up as we want it to, um, recognition that we don't, we're not in control of the situation, um, that it's a delicate process of healing that may result in his death. Uh, but we're going to stay and we're going to be close and we're going to hold hands. And we're going to suffer together. He eventually, you know, he can do whatever he wants these days. But, um, you know, it, it was touch and go many, many, many times. So we're not casting prayers or spells. You know what I mean? We're recognizing does, does that. I mean, I don't know. Does that help? <coughs> I think it's it's inseparably related to the difference between the imperfection of our humanity and sin. So like, you know, there, there's, and we, we confuse these things too, right? Like the, the point back to this point about Mary, Martha and Lazarus, I, I said yesterday in the sermon, God does not like perfection. If by perfection, you mean faultlessness, like with, with, a kind of mechanical precision. Like that's not how God makes things. Like there's this wonderful little essay by Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet about beauty. And he, he, he talks about the beauty of the leaf, right? Is it's asymmetry along with its symmetry that it's, it has a whole, yes. not too perfect yes. to make it artificial. Yeah. Like that there's, there's a kind of imperfection and, and Stephen Hanscom was sharing with me this song. It's a bluegrass song. I'd never heard it before called crooked trees. Mm. And the, 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 the kind of the, uh, the conceit of the song is that the perfect trees get eaten up by the mill industry. The, and there's, I think the line of the chorus is crooked trees don't fit in the mill machine. Crook, crooked trees don't fit in the mill machine. And but God does only, God only makes crooked trees. Like fundamentally, if we run with that metaphor, Martha is a very crooked tree. I mean, she's a she's an unmarried woman. Mary, very strange, another unmarried woman. Lazarus is a man who doesn't speak or act. He's I mean, he can't even I mean, at no point in the Lazarus story does he do anything. He is completely at the mercy of every even after he's resurrected. It's still they have to unwrap his body from the grave clothes. Right. Like he's utterly passive. But all, all that to say, like, I, I think that's not the same thing as saying God loves our sins. Yeah. Right? Our incompleteness, our humanity and all its unfinishedness, that he loves. Sure. And he wouldn't want us to be perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in that other sense. But he, of course, doesn't love our sins. Right. In the same way, I think, like, finitude is good, just like unfinishedness is good, just like the, the crookedness of the tree is good, but death itself, that which sin has brought about, the, 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 the vanity that evil works in the world, like that is not good. And I, I think the, the wonder is that even that, though, even the dying and the being dead has been claimed by God. Like that's territory he's staked out as his own. Yeah. So it's not inherently good, right. but it's been claimed. And I think that is converted as Maxman converted. says yeah. to the use of, of, of God 
And, and I, I think for whatever reason, we've collapsed all of those things together. We think of our, like, I think there's a kind of whole industry now. I know there is a whole industry for trying to become our most perfect selves, perfect health, perfect look, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, what you were talking about earlier, the father John was critiquing, right? Like there's an obsession with being perfect, having a certain image. God hates all that. And we should hate all that. Right. But there is a call to put sin out of our lives. Like it's not that our, the wrongs we do to others. I mean, I mean, the truth is when you get up close to it, the wrongs I'm doing to my neighbors are not coming out of my frailties my humanity and its incompleteness. It's arising out of the attempt to overcome my incompleteness. Yes. I don't want to be finite. That's why I sin. I don't want to be limited. That's why I sin. I can't accept the parameters of my existence. And so I press over into your life unwisely and unfairly. And so these, these are the ways I think that talk about sin and talk about death have to come together. So, Father Ken, you get the last word here. We, I don't want to go on forever. I think people are, I think they can sense kind of where where we stand on it. So the, the, let, ten, let the tension word. that we're trying to name or live into that, as Christopher has said, um, you know, words, uh, you know, words fail as we kind of struggle. Um, I, I loved yesterday um, on, you know, Maximus says of this, uh, to stream humility, which is the place that Jesus speaks loudly to death, that he specifies Lazarus, because if he had just said, come forth, then Mm -hmm. it would have been like Ezekiel. (laughs) All of (laughs) Israel would have come up uh, out of the ground, uh, made Mm -hmm. made one. Mm -hmm. That this story is really a parable about existence about Lazarus is everyone right and at every moment it's the story of God's disposition and action and passivity whatever it is in whatever instance it is telling the story about how death um, is both his enemy um, not finitude um, and that that uh, that death has been overcome by his extreme humility um, by his descending with us uh, into it. But I, I thought we could just, uh, to, to just make it Eucharistic and give some Thanksgiving, we could end with a quote from Irenaeus, um, which Father John had shared with me uh, last week as I was preparing uh, for the time at, um, at Western. Just as the wood of the vine planted in the earth bore fruit in its own time, he's talking about grapes, and the grain of wheat falling into the ground and the earth and being decomposed was raised up manifold by the spirit of God who sustains all, meaning the grain of wheat becomes, you know, comes up out of the ground and uh, is multiplied. Um, then by wisdom, they come to the use of human beings. In other words, by what we have learned um, through God, how to make grapes into wine by crushing them and aging the, 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 the juice and so forth and how we crush the grain and, uh, and knead the dough and make bread. Um, by wisdom, they come to the use of human beings and then receiving the word of God, 
become Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. So also our bodies nourished by it. He's talking about the Eucharist having been placed in the earth and decomposing in it shall rise in their time when the word of God bestows on them the resurrection to the glory of God, the father, uh, remembering the words of Jesus to the disciples. Uh, this, this is for the glory of God who secures immortality for the mortal and bountifully bestows incorruptibility on the corruptible because the power of God is made perfect in weakness. Yes. In order that we may never become puffed up, which is what Chris has been talking about, as if we had life from ourselves, nor exalted against God, entertaining ungrateful thoughts, but learning by experience that it is from his excellence and not from our own nature that we have eternal continuance, that we should not neither undervalue the true glory of God nor be ignorant of our own nature, our finitude, but should know what God can do and what benefits the human, and that we should never mistake the true understanding of things as they are, that is, of God and the human being. Well, yes. Good. <laughs> yes. Understand that. <laughs> and you've got it. That's exactly right. Thank you both again. 